0: Editor-in-Chief at the New Books Network. And I'm here to tell you that we work very hard on getting good
1: audio, but it doesn't always work out as we had planned. So, just to warn you, the audio in the interview you are about to listen to is really not very good. It's not up to our standard. Nonetheless, I thought I would post it,
0: because there may be some of you who want to listen to it, even though it sounds like, well, it just doesn't sound very good. So, with our apologies... Here's the interview. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of new books in East European studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Professor Louis Manashi about his new book, Moscow Believes in Tears. It's about Soviet and Russian film. It's published by New Academia Publishing. In full disclosure, Louis and I have known each other for a long time, and even before reading his book, I learned a great deal about Soviet and post-Soviet film from talking with him. The phone connection was not as good as I would have liked. Nonetheless, I hope you will enjoy our the interview. Today we have the pleasure of having Professor Louis, Louis Minashi here, and uh, he, we'll be talking to him about his new book, Moscow Bleeds in Tears: Russians and Their Movies. Hello, Louis. How are you doing today?
1: Greetings, you. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you, and um, I hope your uh, listeners and uh, your um, constituency understands that I have the pleasure of being your.
0: was a pleasure, and actually, you know, uh, uh, what I haven't had a chance to tell you is you're actually going to be the first interview for New Books in Eastern European Studies. Um, that's a little surprise uh, for you, but, uh, and it, but you were one of the people, when I first saw your, that your book came out last fall, and then I um, was, got involved with this project, I thought of you immediately. And, uh, you know, was really glad to see, you know, your book on uh, movies come out. Well, let me in
1: turn congratulate you on this venture. Uh, that you had, and, and I'm very, very happy to uh, be a
0: part of it. Now, you were mentioning you know, sharing an uh, sharing a, uh, office with each other. And uh, I, one of the things that I noticed was the picture here of Irina Kubchenko, whom you interview. In this book, or the, your interview with her is included in the book, and uh, yeah, it's a very striking picture. Well, yeah,
1: you, you remember it was um, a photograph of her uh, as part of a Musk film, uh, the Musk film, uh, the Moscow film studios. Moss film calendar, a publicity calendar, and it's a very striking um, photograph of her, looking quite glamorous, actually, which is uh, kind of ironic, because most of the parts she plays in the theater and uh, and on film are are on the downside. Uh, She's she's always playing uh, sad or troubled uh, women, Uh, but uh, she's an extraordinary talented, extraordinarily talented,
0: Suppose she did not uh, the celebrating uh, women International Women's Day by making all the cakes and such like that. Yes, yeah, certain
1: gestures like that.
0: Yes. Um, well, uh, before we go forward, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got involved with uh, Soviet and Russian film?
1: Okay. Well, um, as you know, Hugh, I'm a historian of um, of Russia and the Soviet Union. At least that's my professional designation. My specialties were the late Russian period, especially the reign of Nicholas II, and um, and also the revolution and the revolutionary uh, movement that preceded the. uh, Great October Socialist Revolution of 1917. And necessarily, uh, uh, I had to spill over um, in my teaching and in my writing into the Soviet period. And I discovered at Polytechnic where uh, students were primarily interested in their, understandably self interested in keeping up with their science and technology uh, uh, courses. Not terribly interested in Russian or Soviet history. Um, uh, I would add a, um, a caution about that, in that when Soviet uh, emigre students began appearing uh, at the Polytechnic uh, in the in early late late seventies and early eighties, due to the more liberal emigration policies of the regime at the time. Uh, there was a very, very definite interest (laughs) in Russian and Soviet history. Um, But whether it was for the Soviet emigre students or for my um, uh, Brooklyn and New York area students at Polytechnic, I discovered that there was a very, very positive response to my showing films for particular topics illustrating Russian and Soviet history. Um, most notably, the battleship attempted to illustrate the revolution of 1905, um, Eisenstein's um, Ten Days That Shook the World, or October, the original Russian title, to illustrate the revolution of 1917, and so on. And I, I, I did this only uh, at certain points during each semester in Uh, the history of the Soviet Union, or the history of uh, uh, Tsarist Russia. Uh, And then uh, it occurred to me that I should probe this whole area further, and I began offering courses on particular topics, uh, the revolution of 1917, Stalinism, uh, the Second World War, Perestroika, and so on, with films as the primary medium. To be sure, I always announced to my classes that these were not film courses where we would be studying uh, sound and lighting and camera angles and uh, script development and um, uh, uh, acting tendencies and so on. These were simply or maybe not so simply, the illustrative of historical subjects. That is to say, the films were adjuncts to the main subject uh, at hand, which was also illuminated by readings, articles, books, and so on. In other words, they were history courses, not film courses. At about the same time, I started writing on film. Um, I had uh, published uh, articles on um, on Soviet and Russian history in scholarly journals, and then I tried my hand at uh, writing on film. Again, not as a film critic, but as a historian using. And that explains the uh, gestation of the book uh in both its uh larger and
0: more immediate senses. well that's very interesting I didn't know the uh, the last bit of that story of course I knew about the your involvement with cineast and recognized that a lot of the uh uh the pieces in here actually were originally published in cineast yeah,
1: um, I, th- I think probably about um Oh, uh in terms of pages, uh, about uh, oh, about 45% uh, of the material uh, originated in Simeon's magazine.
0: The... Uh, you know, given that this is a collection of writings on Soviet and post-Soviet film, you know, it's probably uh, not possible to, you know, talk about a single overarching thesis. But what do you see are the main themes of the book?
1: make it clear that this is not a film studies, a film scholarship kind of uh, work, Uh, that in in all of the materials collected, I keep one eye on uh, the film itself and another eye on uh, the historical background and setting of the film. And um, I I think uh, if I were... Uh, To describe it, I would have to, you know, sort of fractionalize its subject. That is to say, it's film criticism, uh, it's film history, and it's also, in its own terms, a kind of history of Russia and the Soviet uh, Union. And um, uh, if if, you... if we were to scan the contents or the table of contents, uh, you would see how um, that comes through. For example, I have a whole section called Close Ups on the Past, which I describe the subjects of Stalin and Stalinism as represented by certain films, um, among them a, a very, very important film. That, um, that that sort of was one of the keynotes that filmed? It was filmed, I believe,
0: in 1985, if I'm not mistaken. And so right at the edge of, you know, the Gorbachev era, and so it didn't sit on the shelf like some of the other books you talk, other movies you talk about in the book.
1: Quite right. Uh, It it took Perestroika, Gorbachev, uh, a new Congress of Soviet filmmakers to finally get off the shelves a whole series of films that were made and then banned by the Soviet regime. They were made, uh, which is kind of interesting, why were they made and how were they made? Usually uh, by a certain kind of subterfuge on the part of the directors. Uh, They would tell uh, the uh, the local party people who were placed at every studio, uh well this is a film about uh, such and such, describing it as blandly as possible, getting the resources for it, the money, the actors, uh uh the, the the equipment, uh the cooperation at the studios, going ahead with filming it and then when uh the party the appropriate party committees or censors uh look at the films, they said, No, 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 no way we're gonna disturb the fixing this over here. And, you know, and they were shelf. Um and only saw the light of day to mass audiences
0: with the advent of Paris, and the Gorbachev regime. Yes, and you comment, uh, one of the things that I got from reading your book, is that you think that a lot of those movies are some of the best made in the Soviet era. Good point. Uh, yes, that's very,
1: very true. Um, uh, among them, I, I would say, was Askoldov's Commissar, which is a fascinating, fascinating film uh, based on a short story by the Soviet writer Vasily Grossman uh, about how a Bolshevik commissar, woman, female commissar, who is pregnant, is quartered in the home of a poor Jewish family. And, um, and uh, the, uh, the film... The film was banned for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which was the uh, always present but never fully um, uh, vocalized by the Soviet regime of anti-Semitism. They didn't like the idea that the heroes ultimately of this film were Jews. Uh, There are other reasons as well, there are stylistic uh, innovations in the film which uh, uh, state.
0: I think is one of them, Agonia, the Klimov movie about Rasputin. Yes,
1: uh, 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 titled in the West as, uh, I think, Rasputin, the true story or something. Yeah, there too, uh, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Klimov is an extraordinarily talented uh, filmmaker, and he makes this film about Rasputin and Rasputin's influence on the Russian ruling class at the time. And although the the Soviet masters who determined the fate of a uh, film, theoretically would not be opposed to that kind of depiction, didn't like the idea of a Russian ruling class being presented
0: up possibilities, doesn't it, uh, if you're doing that. The other thing I wanted to mention about the gross, I think, if I recall correctly from the book, you say that it's really, uh, talking about miracles, there was only one copy that he managed to hide. Is that correct? Yes,
1: yes, that's actually uh, the case. uh, And uh, and, and even with the reforms uh, that were engendered by uh, the Gorbachev regime and the, uh, Fifth Congress of Russian, or so I should say Soviet filmmakers. Um, there was some reluctance to, um, they, you know, release the film. And, uh, Askoldov had to make a very, very, very public plea to have it released. And ultimately, uh, that was the case. And it, it had a considerable run in the West, including one year in, uh, New York. And when it was being shown in New York, I was called up a- into New York, and
0: that's how I came to uh, interview him. <laughs> you know, you mentioned, we've been talking about Glasnost here, and one of the things that I enjoyed, particularly in the book, you, you know, you've talked about this uh, book as a kind of history, and it's a, you get a, an interesting history here of Glasnost, and the hopes, and then the fading hopes about what Glasnost will bring. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I, I was among those who thought that uh hey some Soviet civil society had finally awakens. Um, and uh, and even 1989 and 1990, um, there is some questioning as to whether these reforms are going to be successful or not. But I don't think, uh, to be honest, that we at the time thought that the reforms were going to lead to the collapse of the very thing they were intended to reform. Uh, the other th- the other film, by the way, is uh, uh, about another miracle that uh, <laughs> Uh, as, as Solzhenitsyn described him, uh, they feel about Andrei Sakharov, the great, great uh, Soviet nuclear and thermonuclear scientist who becomes a major, major dissident figure and even enjoys a period of participation in the quasi-democracy uh, that takes place during the Gorbachev uh, years. Uh, that film is called In the Shadow of uh, Sakharov. Um, So, uh, a a careful reading of some of the film criticism, some of my introductory uh, notes, and so on, will yield a picture of the Soviet Union from its Stalinist days, uh, through its post-Solic period, uh, and uh, the thaw that takes place with uh, Khrushchev. Uh, the, the stagnation period, uh, as it was known, beginning with Brezhnev, and then through Gorbachev, the glasnost and perestroika, breaths of fresh air, and the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, and what follows. I think you can, you can, um, tease that history from uh, a reading of the various selections in the book,
0: if I may say so. No, I, I think that's true. I think one of the things, is I, what I was struck by, and I just picked up one of them, uh, where, you, you know, so there's a theme in some of the early reviews, which are, you know, it's a kind of diary of, of watching uh, Russian, uh, late, very late Soviet and then Russian films here in the U.S. Uh, in, the, in the 90s. And, you know, you, uh, there's a repeated theme here of not, uh, of, you know, uh, so, be, suddenly having technology available and the results not being particularly good, or having money available. I mean, I re, uh, you have here uh, just I just opened it up here to Swan Lake, the Zone, a film by Yuri Yanko, and you point out that Yanko was uh, was very involved with a key, you know, one of those key uh, movies of the. Uh, uh, of the you know, um, period of stagnation but one of the classic Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors uh, but you start out, you know, again, trouble ahead. Canadian, Hungarian, US, uh, Swedish, and, uh, Dozenko studi- studios all involved. But it's not joint productions they need. It's not technical hardware and Western sophistication they need. Uh, and you point out that Tarkovsky and some of the others did this with, uh, with much with restraint. It's art they need and not counter uh, statements and counter aesthetics. Right
1: quite right, quite right. It's interesting that you, um, you picked on that section of the book. That's when, um, uh, it, it, it follows the period when I first took, um, the subject of Soviet and Russian cinema really seriously in a, uh, in a, in a scholarly as well as a quasi-scholarly, uh, way. Uh, and beginning in 1991, uh, I kept a journal. Uh, I went to see, um, When they were available here in New York, of course, when I traveled in the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia, I would see films there. Uh, But I think uh, what I have in that section is um, what I call Kino Journal, that is a film journal from the years 1991 to 2004, of the films that were being uh, turned out uh, in the post-Soviet period. And um, if you look at, at, at some of the titles, uh, you begin to see why I called the book Moscow Believes in Tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, people ask me that, and they say, wasn't there a film by that name? And I say, no, no, the name of that film, uh, a, um, a 1981 film uh, by Menshoff, was called Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears. And, um, uh, it, it was not simply a, an ironic uh, play on the title, I an mean, inversion of the title. Uh, it was a title that reflected the mood of post Soviet uh, Russia in particular, which was very, very bleak. And the films that were coming out in that decade from roughly, um, and probably continue today, as a matter of fact, but Especially in that decade, from 1991 to 2001, were very, very bleak, Uh, and um, that explains uh, that ironic title, "Moscow Believes in Tears." Uh, By the way, the um, the original saying, uh, "Moscow doesn't believe in tears," I believe, comes from um, an episode in. um, Uh, I think, 16th century uh, Russia, uh, where uh, the town of Novgorod is subjugated by Moscow, and um, the citizens of, uh, or the uh, citizens, uh, I think would be appropriate for Novgorod, which is not ruled by a prince, uh, plead for mercy with their tears, and Moscow replies Moscow does not believe
0: in killers. <laughs> well, I didn't know that story. That's a, that's a very interesting story.
1: Yeah, we'll check the historical details. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Well, we won't hold you to them if it's not quite a, exact. Uh, memories are part of this, are always going to be with us. Uh, you know, the thing is with the, uh, Moscow. You do mention. You know, you don't. I got a feeling at one point you don't seem to like Moscow, please, in tears too much. But you do a, a very interesting uh, comment on it when you're talking about the working class and how. That book, or that movie rather, which is also a product of the uh, stagnation, even though it's it's really talking about a slightly earlier era, uh, if I recall correctly. It it was filmed in 79, but doesn't it really focus on the early 60s? Uh, Yeah. Uh,
1: Well, it it, it covers a whole period of of time, and and, uh, it, it focuses on the rise of an ordinary... Um, working girl to position, to a position of power uh, within her enterprise. Uh, and um, uh, I, I think they're probably referring to another piece I did where the Soviet working class disappears from films. Uh, earlier, of course, the Soviet work, working class was the collective hero uh, of films, except where Stalin appears and he becomes... Hero um, as dominating matters, uh, but um, later Soviet films and post-Soviet films do not dwell on the working class, and um, this is this is kind of notable. Uh, I think of attitudes of the intelligentsia, who are, after all, the filmmakers, uh, and um, we are perhaps uh, you know disavowing. the the traditional emblems of uh, Soviet life, that is to say, the unity of peasants and and workers. So that when you do see the working class, uh, as in Moscow believes, uh, does not believe in (laughs) tears, uh, the idea of the film is to get in the one response I got was, uh, uh, it's an ugly film, and uh, we have enough of that in our regular eyes, why do I have to see uh, that film? Um, Two other responses, which were, um, and I remember a young party official said to me when I asked him how accurate was this film, he said 110% accurate. Um, So I would rank... um, uh, Marcelo Pichel's Little middle uh, era uh, as one of the um, most notable films to come out of the uh, Glossier
0: period. My, my As you know, my Ukrainian wife, Oksana, when I mentioned that early on in our relationship, she said, yeah, it's an awful film. And then I asked her, you mean you didn't like it? She said, no, I liked it, but it was an <laughs> the circumstances in the movie were really awful. And it's interesting there, though, you know, the one shining, quasi-shining light, as I think about it, in that family is the brother who has escaped to the managerial class, if I recall correctly.
1: Right, Right. good point. Um, uh, You know, there were other films that uh, did not dwell on the dark side, uh, even as they, you know, presented some of the uh, dark side up. I would cite in that respect, Kristolovich's um, uh, Adam's Writ of 1990, uh, which presents a working-class family. Uh, actually, uh, Mama uh, is a, I think, museum guide. Um, her uh, daughter is a secretary in a, uh, in a, in a Soviet uh, office. Uh, and her other daughter, I think this is, is, uh, could be a student, and uh, her mother uh, lies uh, mute, having suffered, not explained, but probably the victim of, uh, of of a stroke. So you have three generations living in a
0: Survival of the grandmother. I still, you know, there's some scene, I think, towards the end where she reaches for the, that bell that she uses to communicate. Quite right, right. And it sort of brings, if I recall correctly, and it's been, you know, many years since I saw that film. Uh, but I think it sort of brings the family back together in some way. If I, um, but I might, again, I might be making that up entirely. No,
1: no, no. She, she has a mysterious uh, revival.
0: I've certainly witnessed that from my own experiences in that part of the world. You know, uh, I was thinking though about uh, you know this issue of survival, uh, the women, and I mean you all. You know, of course, that gets to that point. And one of the reasons I think someone like uh, uh, Prokchenko can be so anti-feminist is it's about it's about getting on with it and surviving, and you know the the things that are needed uh, as a little companionship uh, that so so often didn't actually come out the way it was supposed to. Uh, But, you know, this, uh, just thinking about the paradox and why the films developed as they did in the Soviet Union. I think you mentioned that the, During the Stalinist period, where you'd think the height of propaganda and still when Lenin's line would resound with people that film was the most important art, why did it grind to a halt? Well, uh, uh, it ground to a
1: halt... Only uh, after the Second World War, actually, the great patriotic uh, war of the uh, uh, Soviet Union, and that reflected, uh, you know, the increasing paranoia and, uh, and, and viciousness of the Stalin regime and of Stalin personally, um, that uh, restrictions on film uh, made it virtually impossible to be creative. And only a handful of films, actually, were made in the period of the late 40s and uh, early 50s. <coughs> during, during the 1920s and 1930s, some very, very good films uh, were made. Uh, by the mid-30s, when uh, the rigidities of <coughs> enforced socialist realism, the official doctrine for the arts in the Soviet Union, the rigidities of, of socialist uh, realism put a damper on, um, you know, path-breaking uh, films. But nonetheless, good films uh, were made. Um, Eisenstein was still filming, and one of, the, one of his great, great films was Alexander Nevsky in 1989, which was, of course, hailed for its anti-German sentiment only after Uh, the Germans attacked the Soviet Union. There are some amusing stories about that film. Uh, It was made, it was shown, uh, it of course deals with the 13th century encounter (coughs) between the forces of uh, Prince Alexander and the uh, Teutonic Knights. Uh, And um, it was uh, very, very nationalistically uplifting (laughs) Uh, And uh, when the Nazi-Soviet pact was signed in August of 1939, the film was banned, and there are stories about how in the middle of projection at certain theaters, (laughs) the lights went on, the film was uh, shut down. And then, in 1941, the Soviet Union is attacked by their erstwhile allies Nazi Germany and the film comes back into circulation and indeed becomes a, uh an extraordinarily uh energy uh and, and and patriotism boosting uh film.
0: Now I be one one more film after that, the uh Ivan the Terrible yes. series, right? But that's after you know, sort of at the end of the war.
1: Yeah, he he makes that uh, he makes up uh, part one of that film uh, in I believe Kazakhstan. Uh, the, in the Soviet film industry moved eastward, east of the uh, Urals, um, out, out of uh, the danger zone, uh, and um, uh, is, is that film. Is criticized by Stalin personally. Stalin, of course, was a great, great film buff. Uh, <laughs> the misfortune of Soviet filmmakers. He insisted on final cuts over every Soviet uh, film. Um, and uh, he, he criticized it on a number of grounds. And uh, Eisenstein makes a sequel right after the war, um, He found the Terrible Part Two, which is banned. Uh, and only released after uh, Stalin's uh, death. And Eisenstein's career is, uh, you know, is, is filled with uh, certain triumphs uh, the film Potemkin, uh, the film October or 10 Days That uh, the World, Alexander Nevsky, Ivan <coughs> uh, the Terrible, Part One, but at the same time, uh, major, major disappointments. Uh, he, he started a film called Beijing Meadow. Um, based, I think, on a tale um, of Turbineus, or he takes off from a tale of Turbinius. Uh and that film uh, is, see, production on that film is stopped, uh, and, um, and we have only some surviving frames uh, from it, and um, projects for other films were uh, stopped in their tracks uh, by uh, the um, the, the rigid party-state establishment supervising film.
0: Yeah, I and, saw his uh, movie. There's a part, a fragment about his movie about the the uh, Mexican Revolution, which didn't get finished, if I recall correctly.
1: Uh, yes, something called Viva Mexico,
0: um,
1: <clears throat> which uh, which he films. He has. I think I read an interesting episode where he comes to Hollywood uh, and. Uh, Wants to make a film, but for one reason after another, the idea breaks down. He goes to Mexico and makes this uh, quite extraordinary film, which also had a very, very hard time in the Soviet Union, (coughs) about uh, Native uh, Mexican life.
0: Yes, I remember some of the images there. He talks about the noble visages, almost Lenny Reifenstahlish in a way. Uh, uh, The way she talks about, uh, in in her movie about the the, uh, Africans that she's done, which she did later in her life. Um, but, yeah, the thing that you get to, again, getting back to this issue of the working classes, I had not realized uh, until I was reading your uh, your book that just how uninterested the Soviet public was in Soviet cinema. In what? In Soviet cinema. You know, cl- the things that we, uh, and, you know, that tend to hold up and say, wow, this is great stuff.
1: Oh, oh, you mean some of the masterpieces are classic? (laughs) Oh, right. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's certainly true that um, Potemkin could not compete with with what Hollywood was turning out uh, in the 1920s. Uh, The Soviet public would much rather see um, uh, Mary Pickford or Charlie Chaplin (laughs) or Douglas Fairbanks than... Uh, some of these what in the Western world were hailed as uh as classics of like cinema.
0: Did they have that access to that at the in the twenties during the new uh the new economic period? Yeah, yeah, yeah and then uh, how was that translate into the in the 60s of uh, 60s and 70s i mean did people go off to see i mean some of these i know there were they would you know one tactic was to have very restricted audiences for certain movies uh i think a Tar- uh, like a tarkovsky movie might get very limited audiences but what happened with something like you know with shadows of forgotten ancestors did people g- go see that or was that Relatively limited.
1: No, you're you're quite right. Uh, There were um, categories of um, defining distribution uh, capabilities, and certain films were uh, of limited. Those that weren't bands, right? Uh, I mean, there were films that
0: I mentioned this, you know, Tarkovsky, I think, have got limited dis- distribution. What about Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, just as, a, as an example of a, you know, I can't think of anything ideologically problematic about it. Well, except for its, uh, you know, stylistic innovations. It's a beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm.
1: film, one of the most beautiful uh, and moving films ever made in the Soviet Union.
0: They probably know it... I know that. I think, I think Ukrainians may know it better simply because of its, or, you know, that it takes place in the Carpathians. The Carpathians, yeah. Oh, uh, the Hutsuls. That, exactly, the Hutsuls, yeah. And so the other, uh, you know, so you get, you know, that, but that's a peculiarity. I first saw it at the Harvard Ukrainian uh, Summer School. I qu- couldn't understand it because my Ukrainian was so weak. Uh, and the things I did understand were things that were spoken in Russian, I think, because my, I was able to make uh, my own knowledge of Polish somehow corresponded better with the Russian at that point than it did with the Ukrainian.
1: Well, you can, uh, apart from the linguistic uh, dimensions of uh, the film, you can appreciate it purely on visual grounds. It's a beautiful, beautiful film, beautifully uh, shot. Uh, With that amazing uh, opening scene, where I think he has a camera mounted on the top of a uh, (coughs) a pine tree as it's being cut down, and um, you, the viewer, go down with the pine tree as it hits the ground. Um, And it's interesting to note, by the way, I'm glad you know you brought up this uh, subject that we tend to think of Soviet films as Russian films, but we should also recognize that the non-Russian republics were also making films, whether it was Ukraine or, or, or Russia or uh, uh, Latvia or uh, Estonia. Uh, and uh, uh, in ranking films, if I were ever to compile a ten greatest uh, Soviet films, uh, I, I would say that Parizanov's, uh <coughs> Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors would be uh, at the top of the list but a, a, a another non-Russian film would also qualify in my estimate uh, and that is uh, a, an extraordinary film called Pirosmani, which is a Georgian film by the filmmaker shangri um, uh, about a Georgian artist at the turn of the century. very, very sad uh, uh, life. He was an alcoholic and he was reduced to poverty and uh, uh, gave his uh, paintings to innkeepers for uh, a room and board and, uh, and so on. And it's a beautiful, beautiful film now, based on Perismani's sort of modern primitive paintings uh, with attempts on the part of the filmmaker to recreate scenes from the paintings uh, in the film. And uh, there are times when you're looking at the film and you don't know whether you're looking at a painting or whether you're looking at a tableau de of an actual scene being shot in front of the camera. Um, so uh, <laughs> those two films uh, should make it clear that not all Soviet films were Russian films.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the Georgia because I was you were mentioning all the other places. I you know I didn't notice you mentioned uh, here in the book. You I think you interview. Do you interview a Georgian? Uh, or I know you talk very much about a Georg, one of the Georgian filmmakers here. Oh, the repentance. It was repentance we were talking about earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah
1: actually, I, I interviewed a, um, a Georgian filmmaker, Nana Torgovska, uh, you know, a talented filmmaker and actress from uh, Georgia. I also interviewed a. Um, a young, he was young at the time, um, filmmaker by the name of Sabadza. Uh, and I don't know that, um, I think George Hadza has continued to make films beyond the 1990s, uh, but a kind of lost track of Sabadza. Uh, and, um, and, and, and it was interesting getting a, quote, Georgian point of view, unquote, on
0: um, on soviet life on soviet society <clears throat> on soviet history you know just one i'm just thinking about the fact that you were showing you know when you first were showing these films to your students or maybe the later period when you started doing the thematic courses you were talking about were the students these are probably a lot of films that they had never heard of themselves even though the even the ones that uh, growing up in the soviet union is that correct yes
1: Absolutely correct, right? but there was another side of it too. They brought to my attention certain films that I hadn't seen. I might have heard about them, but I hadn't seen one example of that. I taught a course on uh, 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 Russia uh, in, in Re- Russia in Revolution and Civil War, <laughs> and, and I have you know very very uh, uh, um, fat selection of films to choose from. Um, but, uh, I remember very vividly after, um, one of those courses, a student, a Soviet Democrat student, telling me, hey professor, what you really should show is White Sun of the Desert, which I had not seen. Uh, and I finally tracked down the film, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful sort of, uh, uh, a Soviet style Western that takes place in Central Asia during the uh, Civil War, uh, where uh, the Red Army was fighting uh, local uprisings. <clears throat> and it has touches of, uh, of humor uh, that I think are uh, an, an irony that are unmatched in any Soviet film.
0: There's a movie I saw years ago, uh, well, I was still, uh, this is when I was living in uh, newly independent ukraine and uh, watching a Kino, a fair amount of the time and uh, there's a movie with vysotsky playing it's sort of a post it's post world war two he's playing i think a police man who's tracking dealing with uh, uh gangs sort of post you know, uh criminal gangs do you know the film I'm talking about
1: in in Russia yes uh, that might be a, a Moravia film. Um, it, it, it
0: kind of rings a bell. <laughs> well, you know, we are coming to the end of our hour. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this. I look. I, I just noticed yesterday a friend of mine who also uh, actually he's a specialist in uh, Soviet and post-Soviet history uh, noted that you can now get uh, a lot of class, uh, Mos uh, Mos films. Uh, free for download on YouTube, apparently. Yes. Uh, uh,
1: Yes. (laughs) I haven't done it yet, but uh, I understand that that's the case, and I think maybe um, (laughs) almost 50 titles are uh, now available. Uh, with, with subtitles, by the way. that should be emphasized.
0: Yes, I think the only problem is you have to be able to read Cyrillic because the titles are still in Cyrillic or something like that.
1: No, no, no. I think they, um, the, um, the press release that I saw indicated that they were subtitled in
0: English. No, the subtitles were in English, but I think you, in order to find the films, they, the films themselves, when you go to look for them on YouTube, may still be in... Uh, Cyrillic or something, Uh, but uh, in any case, you know, uh, it's... it's That would really make it difficult for someone who doesn't
1: know Cyrillic to find uh, the titles.
0: Yes, it would. I hope they sort that out, but uh, I was thinking, you know, it's customary at New Books and the New Books uh, Network to ask people to talk about three books that they'd recommend on the subject, and while I don't want to I'll stop you from talking about books. I thought maybe you should, apart from Shadows of, uh, of Forgotten Ancestors, which you made clear you really like, some other movie, Soviet movies you think people should enjoy, so they might not have seen it before. Well,
1: um, Adam, Adam's Rick uh, is one film that I would uh, include in that category, uh, and that did in fact have a, a brief run uh, here in New York back in 1991-92. Um, uh, as for other films, well, there was a film by uh, Victor Aristoff called Satana uh, Satan uh, in 1992, which uh, I, I thought it was a, uh, a, quite a, a terrific uh, film. Also extremely uh, dark and, and extremely consistent.
0: much, Louie. It's been a pleasure talking to you about films. And I, you know, it is sad as, a, you know, if, if those of you who haven't had the pleasure of reading the book yet, uh, you know, to see, you know, the, the sort of disappointment that there aren't a lot of great films coming out right now uh, in, in the, from the former Soviet space. Uh, but I suppose that will change again.
1: out that the, uh, the book uh, is published by New Academia uh, Publishing, and it's what is known as a, a, an on-demand, on-demand book, which means, you know, you won't find it on the you know, shelves of your local bookstore, but you can order it online through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or through the publisher uh,
0: itself. Or, by telling your local bookstore uh, uh, dealer to get it for you. Well, of course, we hope you get. I hope that uh, some people will find them, find it interesting uh, to get. I think it was it's well worth reading. Uh, and you know it's a good good insight give you, for those of you who are not familiar you go, you'll get uh, uh, with Soviet um, Russian film you'll get a good introduction get a lot of little uh, glimpses of why they're important as historical documents or otherwise so again it's been a pleasure Louis. I thank you for uh, coming and find, making time for this interview today so uh until next time, we'll have another episode of New Books in East European History. Thank you for calling, Louis, and bye-bye. Thank
1: you. The pleasure has been mine, you. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the time you have spent
0: with me. You've been listening to an interview with Professor Louis Minashi about his book, Moscow Believes in Tears, published by New Academia Publishing. I'm Hugo Lane, your host for New Books in East European Studies, and wishing you the best until next time. Bye-bye.